Well, it's that time for us to take up our Bibles and uh, dig into the Word of God together, teaching portion of our worship service. So excited to be able to rally around the truth with you. Uh, Pardon all around if uh, you are looking for a Bible in the back of the pew and there isn't any. Uh, This this looks like a church, but it is really a performing arts center, uh, sadly. Um, but we, uh, we make it a church three hours on Sunday, so um, we're, we're sorry that uh, there are no Bibles in the back for you if uh, you don't happen to have a pocket one available. Uh, but the passage that we're looking at is a familiar one, uh, so if you will uh, uh, take your Bibles, those who have them, and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, we're looking at uh, verses 26 to 39 this morning, or actually uh, 26 to 31, while you're turning some fitting words of introduction, uh, many words of introduction, that is. uh, We're all familiar, I think, with the concept of safekeeping. Some people put their jewelry away in a box uh, for safekeeping. Others put their pills in a cabinet for the same reason. For years, people have stored their leftover food in containers or wrapped them in that very uh, clingy plastic wrap to preserve the the life of the food until they can eat it again. We refrigerate it for safekeeping. We do all kinds of things for safekeeping. We, We even take the verb to be safe and we create a name for that steel lockbox that we store all our valuables in a safe. It's primitive, but it works. The idea of safekeeping is very much a part of biblical language and not surprisingly a part of our understanding of faith. The title of my three-part message is Safekeeping Faith, in case you hadn't noticed. I chose that because it has the the kind of multi-dimensional meaning that I believe the New Testament and specifically the book of Hebrews captures. For example, there are at least two major ways that we can understand the idea of safekeeping faith. One is this. Safekeeping faith can refer to the subjective act of believing or putting one's trust in gospel truth and how that act of faith keeps us safe. Faith is the subject, in other words, of the keeping, and we are the objects. Faith keeps us safe. It keeps us safe. In what ways does faith keep a person safe, we might ask? Well, in a number of ways, but here are just a few. Saving faith keeps one safe from the wrath of God. Paul says that salvation is by grace through faith, and salvation, of course, is from God's judicial judgment, right? Sanctifying faith protects believers in the good fight. That's another way that faith keeps us safe. Not only are we saved by faith, but we live by faith as well. Paul talks about this kind of faith when explaining the spiritual armor of God that we wear in order to fight the heavenly, the, uh, the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. It includes, as he says, the shield of faith, which we are able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Believers' faith in God's resources, his promises, in the sufficiency of his word, which, by the way, is itself to be belted around our waist. All of of these things keep them safe. 
So safekeeping faith has us depending on the Holy Spirit for help, returning to Jesus, our high priest, over and over again for grace in time of need and constantly asking God for wisdom. So all in all, we're talking about a faith that preserves. It preserves us from the wrath of God to come, that obeys scripture, a faith that is loyal to Christ, a faith that loves God. And it certainly is the kind of faith that is a gift from God and that the writer wants to make sure his audience has. Now that's one way that we might understand safekeeping faith. Here's another way. Safekeeping faith can also refer to the the Christian's job to keep safe the faith, that is, Christianity as it is formally and objectively presented in special revelation. So whereas in the first instance, safekeeping faith protects us, here it refers to that objective body of revelation that Jude referred to as the once for all delivered to the saints' faith that we keep safe. This Christianity with a faith is what defines us. It's what informs our epistemology, helps us to recognize counterfeit truth and keeps us from drifting. All the more reason why we should guard it. And here really are three prominent ways that we do that. We keep it safe by fighting for its purity Jude calls us to contend for the faith. Remember in his little postcard epistle, the Greek verb to contend means to make a strenuous effort on behalf of something, to fight for something. So we fight for doctrinal purity and against threatening false teaching. God has entrusted his revelation to us for safekeeping. That's why we're not to add to it or take away from it or change it in any way or tamper with it. We also keep the faith safe by teaching it, modeling it in real life. This objective faith is is living and active, you see. It makes a profound impact on life. We show the world just how profound when we preach it and teach it and when we live it before them. And they see its wisdom. They really do. Just just how well-adjusted and immovable those live by it are. In the words of the psalmist, the one, that, the one that lives it will be like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither and in whatever he does he prospers. What a great psalm, Psalm 1. Jeremiah 17 adds to this tree metaphor explaining that the tree does not fear when the heat comes but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. How attractive is that? Making the faith attractive. We also keep the faith by persevering in it until the end. Persevering in it until the end. We fight for its purity, we model it in real life, and we hold it as a lifelong passion. The faith is much like, I think, aggressive and high-risk mutual funds. If you know anything about them, you know that you cannot judge their effectiveness by what they yield in the short term, right? If you do, then you get nervous and you're, you're liable to cancel them out. They 
often suffer lows with the market, dip quite low at times, and and that's a recurring theme with these high-risk, aggressive mutual funds. It would seem to policyholders during these many lows that the fund will actually lose them money, but if if you were to draw a graph of their progress over the long haul, you would find that they earn more money than they lose, and the amount that they earn steadily goes up over time. High-risk, aggressive trading that characterizes such funds proves over a long period of time to be worthy of their investment. Anybody over 45, it's too late, by the way, for high-risk, aggressive mutual funds. The Christian life holds great investment for those who put their faith in Christ. And if they per- persevere to the end, they will have a great reward. It is an unimaginable inheritance. But they need to wait for this great yield. While life here might get worse, more difficult as the believer matures week by week, the fruit of his ministry always ebbing and flowing, he takes into account the entire Christian life from conversion to glory and he sees its priceless value. This is the faith that we're talking about, what God has delivered to us, and we're responsible to preserve it, and responsible to persevere in it. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, For we who live are constantly being handed over to death because of Jesus, so the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. Now we find these three themes of contending for the purity of the faith and modeling it and, and persevering in it throughout the New Testament, mainly in context of apostasy. Apostasy. Paul would tell Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.20, protect what has been entrusted to you. And Paul's referring here to the gospel itself. Timothy was entrusted with the safekeeping of the gospel, protecting and contending for it. The Greek word translated protect in this particular passage, the NASB translates it protect. We could translate put in safekeeping. It's the exact same word Luke uses in Acts 12.4 to describe Herod's capture of Peter, no doubt for his execution. And until that time, Herod put him in prison, turning him over to the four squads of soldiers for safekeeping. So Paul reminds Timothy that the Holy Spirit entrusted the gospel to Timothy for safekeeping, for protection. And that is really the responsibility of all Christians, and especially shepherds. Why does he remind Timothy of this charge? Well, in the rest of the passage, we find verses 20 and 21 that there was worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thereby have gone astray from the faith. False teachers were trying to pass off a, a false gospel as true knowledge. Paul says it, it's really false. And those who profess it have gone astray from the faith. Paul also commands Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, to model the faith, or, in his words, do the work of ministry as one way of countering the the coming apostasy that Paul prophesies in the verse just previous. Finally, there are examples of 
persevering in this revelation that we call the faith. After Jude calls us to contend for it at the beginning of his epistle, he then calls us in his parting words to persevere in it. He says, by building yourself up on your most holy faith. And then he tells them just how to do that. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Looking forward to the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Perhaps the most sobering word to individual Christians to guard the faith comes from Jesus himself in Matthew 24. I know you're familiar with Matthew 24. In verses 42 uh, 42 to 44, which was our scripture reading for this morning, you won't find the word safekeep anywhere mentioned there, but the idea is inescapable. It comes out in a few ways. It comes out first in the key phrase, watch yourselves. Watch yourselves. They're to keep an eye on how they live this most holy faith in these end times. Jesus uses the normal Greek word here for see, figuratively as we often use it today, to communicate the idea of guarding. So we would say, see to it that no one deceives you. Be careful not to let anyone mislead you or fool you. And why is that so necessary? Because, Jesus says, many will come in my name saying, I'm in the, I am the Christ, and they will mislead many people, verse 5. Because at that time, many will fall away, and they will betray one another and hate one another, verse 10. Because false Christ and false prophets will arise and will provide great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect, verse 24. Jesus is not saying, of course, that it is possible to mislead the elect away. He's just giving us an idea of just how powerful the lure of apostasy will be. Safe keeping our faith. It also comes out in Jesus' other phrase, be on the alert. This time he uses the normal word to live figuratively for giving strict attention to something actively actively cautioning us about something. Give attention to this, he says. We might say today, wake up. Or maybe use that military phrase of bygone years, look alive. Some of you remember that. It means hurry up and get busy. And of course, being busy about righteousness is exactly what Jesus is telling us that we need to do and what should characterize Christians until he returns in Matthew 24. This is the the meaning of Jesus' charge to us, to be ready at all times for his return so that we are never caught off guard. The idea of safekeeping comes out finally, I think, in Jesus' illustration of verse 43. The owner of a house, he said, would be able to keep his house safe from intruders if he knew when those intruders are likely to strike. Since we cannot know when our master will return, the best way to be ready at all times is to be responsible with the faith that God has entrusted to us. The faith, biblical Christianity, God's plan of salvation, which is the true knowledge of God, the only and ultimate life-saving word, which is precious and valuable. Jesus shed his blood to establish it. God gave gave it uh, to true believers as a gift. 
And we who claim Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we need to protect our most holy faith and all that it entails. There are many biblical steps God gives us to keep our faith safe from corruption and and to keep us persevering in it. We've already uh, mentioned a few here, Jude telling us to to ask for the assistance of the Holy Spirit in prayer. Paul says to avoid the error that comes by way of counterfeit teachers. Jesus says, know your Bible, especially eschatology, which is the whole reason that he educates us about the end times. He says that when you see taking place what was spoken of through the prophet Daniel, then let the reader understand Daniel. And more directly, Jesus says to us, Behold, I have told you in advance. So if anyone anyone says, Believe this, or tells you to do that, do not believe him. We mentioned last time that in the flow of this particular chapter, we are at a place where the writer takes two encouraging sections and sandwiches a word of judgment right in the middle. In verses 19 to 21, he admonishes believers to faith and hope and love. And in verses 32 to 39, he will give incentives for godly living, all very encouraging. But in verses 22 to 31, he gives a warning, a warning about falling away, about apostasy, and the sure judgment that is associated with it. We might sum it up this way. Warn believers of the alternative, the way of death, the way of the apostate. If you were with us last time, you saw here only two options that the writer brings to life. Only two, the way of eternal life and the way of death. The writer considers now the way of death, which is the way of the apostate. And he says very soberly in verse 26, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There is no salvation, in other words, no redemption, no forgiveness from God. That option is no longer on the table when there is apostasy. So what's left? Well, we read first in verse 27, that what's left is the second option, the way of death, which is the way of the apostate. And in verse 27, we learn that apostasy invites terrifying and all-consuming judgment. So the option for the apostate is terrifying and all-consuming judgment. It reads this way, a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which consumes the adversaries. For those who reject orthodoxy, who turn their backs on sound doctrine and reinvent the faith to fit their own selfish ends, if not openly denounce it altogether and go away, they have no other option available to them but the way of death, according to the writer. There is no middle ground, make no mistake. Many in this world might believe that there is and they may live as though they have attained it in some way, but they are only fooling themselves. Either one rejects the biblical Christ and faces condemnation for eternity, or one trusts the biblical 
Christ and enjoys eternal life with a holy God that begins the moment of conversion and continues on in heaven forever. That's what the gospel says. And it's as simple as that. The verse also dispels any notion that hell is a big party place for all the rebel rousers. I'm sure you've heard that. The writer calls God's judgment a fury of fire, which became a technical phrase in the Old Testament for God's judgment. We are not surprised that it carries over into the New Testament. Jesus' parable of the tares in Matthew 13 is a good example of its use. He says the tares are the sons of the evil one, the enemy who sowed them as the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age. And the readers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire. That place, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Paul would speak of the same in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 7 through 9, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with, a mighty, with mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These people will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And in the book of Revelation, John refers to the lake of fire itself. These, you have to admit, are terrifying prospects for any non-Christian, which is why God's judgment is part of the gospel, beloved, and it's why we need to keep it part of the gospel. It shouldn't be omitted, because when we do that, we run the risk in preaching a gospel without justice. And that's no gospel at all. The writer reveals this end, this judicial judgment of God, as the only option to trust in Christ. There are no others. And when you consider these two options, these extreme options, one is as bad as the other is good, you have to wonder what thinking person would not choose Christ. But oh, the sin nature blinds the lost to this truth, doesn't it? And it takes the supernatural weapon of God's truth to penetrate the heart. Now, this is not the last word that the writer gives on the sobering subject. He has more to say, and sad to say, it gets worse. Worse, you say? What can possibly be worse than the lake of fire? Well, a stricter judgment in the lake of fire, that's why. Number two, apostasy invites the most severe judgment, the most severe, verses 28 and 29. The writer here builds an argument from lesser to greater, which is a popular way of arguing in the New Testament. Verse 28 says, anyone who has ignored the law of Moses is put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Stop right there. What is that all about? Well, there were capital offenses in the Old old Covenant that If one were found guilty of by the testimony of two or three eyewitnesses, that one would be executed. We know about this 
even in our own country, there are some states that carry uh, capital punishment, and the, the federal offense for treason is capital punishment. The writer quotes Deuteronomy 17 and 13, which are texts that give the penalty for those who are native Israelites, who grew up with the law, catechized by their parents, witnessed firsthand the miraculous work of Yahweh, and not only to reject all of it and go serving other gods, but they blatantly reject the Lord warranting death without mercy. His audience, the writer's audience, writer of Hebrews, would have known this. They would have understood it, and they would have accepted it since they were Jewish Christians. Now, with that said, verse 29 finishes off the thought with the argument from lesser to greater. How much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sacrificed and has insulted the Spirit of grace? This is perhaps the harshest warning in the book of Hebrews, and hopefully you can see it. If a deliberate renouncing of God's word warranted immediate physical death in the Old Covenant, how much more severe would punishment be for those of the New Covenant with better promises who renounce Christ, either by redefining away any biblical significance of him or breaking all ties with him? Well, the question is rhetorical, isn't it? The answer is obvious. Much worse. So what is worse than physical death? Well, spiritual death. Spiritual death, what the book of Revelations calls the second death, which is to be separate from God and his paradise and suffer in a place called the lake of fire. So we might understand this argument of lesser to greater this way. Apostasy under the old covenant was punishable by immediate physical death, but apostasy under the new covenant, which may or may not endanger someone's life, will certainly result in a spiritual death at the end of time. And that's far worse. Now, just to sum up what we've said so far, all those who reject Christ and the gospel face God's judicial judgment at the end of time. Those who are apostate, however, face a stricter judgment because they know better. Now, they've come to understand the faith and experience much of its benefits, witness God's tangible blessings on his people. Now, this would be true even of the apostate of, Israel, of, of Israel's time, the Old Covenant, who were executed um, there. They will also face spiritual death at the end of time as well. And while the Old Testament apostate faced, faces a stricter judgment, say, than the pagan who never knew uh, God in Israel. And the unbeliever today who never hears the gospel, the apostate under the new covenant will receive a stricter judgment than all because of what he rejected. The greater the amount of revelation rejected, you see, the greater the sin. And the greater the sin, the greater the judgment. The sin of apostasy in the new covenant is the greatest sin there is and it warrants the strictest judgment. 
Now, the writer already gave us a description of these folks back in chapter 6. If you remember, they had experienced as fully as possible the Christian life without actually having become Christians. In addition to them, there may have also been those who professed Christ, even got baptized, but were still counterfeit. These two groups of people are as ready as they will ever be to becoming Christians. You need to understand that. They will be as ready as they will ever be. With all the knowledge of the gospel that they have and the experience of being in the body of believers who receive God's blessings and the working of the Holy Spirit, they need nothing else, nothing else. But rather than take the step, the next step, and embrace that, well, they throw it overboard and they go in an opposite direction. Or maybe they continue to pay lip service only to God's gospel, not really believing in it in their hearts, just following along in order to ensure themselves that they have found some acceptance. Why apostasy in all its forms is so terrible and unforgivable is because of what it really does. What it really does. For one thing, Apostates trample underfoot the Son of God, the writer says. The phrase trample underfoot is used literally in the New Testament, as in Matthew 5.13, where Jesus talks about how salt loses its saltiness, and after that it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out on the street and trampled underfoot by people. Or the sower's seed that fell beside the road and couldn't take root there because it, had tra- it was trampled underfoot. The literal meaning gave birth, of course, to a figurative meaning, one, one that means to spurn something, to treat with insult and neglect, to be contemptuous about it, to despise it, to show disdain for something. Jesus would say that we mustn't give, you remember, what is holy to the dogs and throw your pearls before pigs, or they'll trample them under their feet and turn and tear you into pieces, Matthew 7. Jesus speaks metaphorically here, of course, for those who have no regard for God and not only vehemently reject the gospel, but violently reject you, the messenger. Paul knew a little bit about this firsthand, didn't he? His testimony of his persecutions because of the gospel is frightening and 2 Corinthians 11, do you remember there? Enduring prisonments, beaten at times without number, often in danger of death, five times received from the Jews, 39 lashes, three times beaten with rods, once stoned and left for dead. And in these moments, Paul left. He did, he left. He got out of town whenever his audience became so enraged that it reached a point of becoming perilous for him. I think it's so very important that we understand this, beloved. If we dialogue with somebody about the gospel to the point that that person says, enough, I don't want to hear any more, well, then we don't continue to ram it down one's throat, right? We don't do that. We don't believe in evangelistic harassment, right? If he wants to hear more, he knows where to find you. But more than this, if those we give the gospel to respond violently to us, well, then it's time to leave. 
And Jesus instructs us this way in Matthew 10, 14. He says, whoever doesn't receive you nor, or listen to your words as you leave that, that house or city, shake the dust off your feet. In other words, that's it. You don't need to return anymore. Apostle Paul did just that in Acts 13. The word of the Lord was being spread throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited and the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. In Acts 18, when, Paul and, uh, when Silas and Timothy rather came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the work of ministry, remember, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. It says in verse 6, <clears throat> Acts 18, verse 6, But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments, and he said to them, Your blood is on your own head. I'm clean. From now on, I go to the Gentiles. And he did. He left the synagogue. We needn't go any further with this, I think, the point is um, that to trample underfoot is a derogatory statement. The writer describes someone who has tasted the goodness that is associated with the gospel, but rather than trust it, he spurns it. He treats it with contempt, something worthless. The next phrase bolters, bolsters this idea, regarded as unclean the blood of Christ. Once again, to really understand the full impact of this phrase, you need to have a good working knowledge of the Old Testament, especially the Levitical Code. Something that was unclean in the Old Testament wasn't necessarily sinful. Obviously, everything sinful was unclean, but not everything deemed unclean was sinful. It was simply not acceptable in God's sight. If you touched a dead person during burial, obviously the priest... Uh, also had to touch the carcasses of dead animals for sacrifice, for which he made a sacrifice for himself, because touching dead things made you unclean. A woman in the middle of her cycle was unclean and could not come into the temple. That didn't make her sinful. It just made her unacceptable until she was over it and washed ceremonially. What the writer says here is that those who don't embrace Christ, regardless of which kind of apostasy we're talking about, they are guilty of regarding the the, the blood of Jesus as unclean. And that's an abomination, since the blood of Christ is what propitiated the Father, redeemed God's elect, and inaugurated God's covenant. Well, the last phrase captures the meaning exactly. Has insulted the spirit of grace. Let's understand, this is not a person who hears the gospel and decides it's not for him and kindly responds to you by telling you that he has another view that seems to work just fine for him. Thank you very much. While all who reject the Son stand to receive condemnation at the end of time, as we said, those who apostatize stand to receive a stricter judgment. The writer is describing traitorous acts here. We might say, like those of Judas. A person associates with a local church. He's privileged to experience God's goodness firsthand by being with them and seeing the benefits of the kingdom. 
by living and, and participating joyfully in their activities to a certain degree, and then to reject the gospel is really a treasonous act against the kingdom of God. Treason, even in America, is a capital offense. In God's kingdom, it is punishable by the strictest judgment possible at the end of time. Well, we come to the final the final truth of apostasy, it invites sure judgment. And that's in verses 30 to 31. The writer speaks with certainty at this point. Judgment that is of the strictest kind awaits those who have trampled underfoot the Son of God and have assaulted the Holy Spirit of grace. And that is a guarantee. He says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. One thing we notice about this writer, he always uses scripture to make his point, doesn't he? Isn't that great? We've seen this all throughout. And here he quotes from the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. And specifically from verses 35 and 36. The section there speaks of God's sole right to take vengeance on his enemies, even those in Israel who went whoring after other gods and abandoned the covenant. In other words, apostates. God will vindicate his people from those enemies, not just of foreign nations, but enemies from within to counterfeit Israelites. God speaks with absolute resolve here. He will do this. So the apostate abandons God as his Savior and Lord only to meet him as his judge in the end. Rightly does the writer declare it is a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God. When John received his revelation and wrote it down for us, he was given a vision, you may remember, of the kind of judgment that God will bring on his enemies, no matter who they are. He writes in Revelation 6, Then the kings of the earth and the eminent people, the commanders and the wealthy and the strong, every slave and free person hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said, To the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the sight of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? This warning emphasizes, I think, the divine judgment and call calls readers to take seriously the consequences of dumping overboard the gospel call that they've heard and seen operational in the lives of so many saints. By way of conclusion, then let me just bring this, wind this to a close for things. Number one, if you don't know Christ, then you need to. If you don't know Christ, you need to. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved from God's wrath to come. That's the message. Refuse to trust your own strength. Refuse to trust in your own works and trust finally and completely on the work of Christ alone, and you will have eternal life. God will accept you in Christ. He will. Number two, if you've experienced the blessings of what it means to know Christ from being in and among God's people, but have not trusted Christ, 
then ask God for a believing heart to do so as quickly as you can, for the other option is a terrifying one. It is consuming judgment of the strictest kind. Don't forfeit the day of salvation. Martin Lloyd-Jones addressed apostates in his day, commenting from the book of Hebrews, this very passage. He says, quote, But alas, for some reason or other, they have not committed themselves, they've not accepted it, and they've allowed themselves to drift past it. What a horrible thing it is to be in the sight of the heaven only to drift past. The author of Hebrews warns these people against that danger, and that is the warning of the gospel throughout the scriptures, end quote. Number three, if you have embraced Christ, but you have become lax in your faith, then you're in danger of hurting your faith, living an impoverished Christian life, and spiritual impoverishment is so foreign to Christianity. Remember this, Jesus' words in Matthew 24, to watch yourselves that no one deceives you is a command, last I checked. And that means that we are responsible to stay sober-minded and also accountable for our own deception. Oh yes, there's never any excuse to be deceived. Never. There is absolutely none or to drift, or to wane in faith, not when we have the complete word of God, so many good resources available to us. Then again, we all need to be encouraged in the way, don't we? And we will explore how the writer incentivizes us in the next section. Till then, may the Lord sustain us and keep us. There's more, and it's good news, and I can't wait to review it with you. Father, thank you for this time together.